collect? Because I had a whole bunch more than we listed that night. Uh, sure. Okay, I'll just send Let's that to that you. To okay, good morning, everybody. Let us begin with prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O God, on this day you once taught the hearts of your faithful people by sending them the light of your Holy Spirit to unite disciples of all nations in the cross and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. By the preaching of the gospel, spread this gift to the ends of the earth. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, our hymn of the month, hymn 604. There are no hymnals in this room, but the hymn is printed out in the back. Um, if you want to listen to the hymn throughout the week, too, it's on the podcast. You can listen to it on the podcast. It'll be up here. The stanzas that we're singing are one, three, and five. You do not have to stand for the fifth stanza. Just stay seated. It's all going to be okay. Also, our tendency is going to be to slow down uh, since there's no organ behind us. So I'm going to conduct mostly because I can't help it. But if you want to keep the time, I'll be up here. Ready? Mm. I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity by invocation of the same, the three in one and one in three. I bind unto Salvation, salvation. 
also going to be the hymn of the day next week, which is Trinity Sunday. So we are the secret crowd who's going to be prepared. Uh, now, congregation of prayer, the verse of the week is from Psalm 118. Let us speak this together. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. All right, there's really not much to say about this because it pretty much gives it all to you. It's short and sweet and to the point. Um, first of all, you'll notice the preposition in. Why do you have trust in or confidence in? Because this is faith language. To trust in or have confidence in is faith language and faith always has an object. So who is your object going to be? Is your object going to be the Lord or is your object going to be man? This should be an easy question for all of us. The object of your faith is in Christ. It is in the Lord. Salvation is of Christ the Lord. Um, better to trust in the Lord. And for what do you trust in the Lord? Better to trust in Him for life, for salvation, uh, for help and healing, for nourishment, for faith, for everything. It's better to trust in Him for everything than it is to trust in man. And that also reminds me of a hymn which we sang not too long ago. I think it was just one of the distribution hymns. But one of the stanzas is, Trust not in princes they are but mortal. Earthborn they are and soon shall decay. That's this. Don't, trust, don't put your trust in man. Uh, sooner or later, you will learn that man will always disappoint you. At one time or another, putting your trust in man is only going to lead to disappointment. The only one who will never let you down and will never disappoint you is the Lord. So, yeah. better to put your trust in Him instead. Let's speak this uh, together again. It is better to trust in the Lord than to confidence in Him. Okay, the Catechism, again, we're in the Table of Duties. This week it is uh, of civil government, so we'll just do all of this from Romans 13. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Okay, what commandment does this pertain to? The fourth commandment. Honor your father and your mother has a lot more meaning than Obey mom and dad. It is all who are in authority over you that you are to serve and obey, love and cherish. Whether or not you voted for them, 
and whether or not you like them. <laughs> uh, that's the reality, folks. Submit to your governing authorities. Sometimes you'll, you're going to disagree with what they say, but as a Christian, your job is not to fight all the time and rebel and start a coup, but to submit. There was a, a revolt that took place in Reformation Germany uh, where the peasants stood up and revolted against the government. And Luther said, not at all, peasants. This is not how you are to behave. And in fact, he wrote a letter and he said, I think he wrote the letter to the prince, and he said, you as the governing authority must send your soldiers to go punish those peasants. Go send your soldiers to squash the rebellion because that's what you do. They are not to rise up and you are not to uh, become a tyrant or a dictator. Now, this is all well and good. Submit to the authority, do good and you will receive good. He's there for your benefit as one who has been put in authority by God. Fine and dandy. But what if the governing authorities uh, say, I don't know, the king of Babylon. Now we're in Babylon. And the king says, this golden statue of me, you have to bow down and worship anytime you hear the sound of the shofar, the sound of the trumpet. What, uh, what are you going to do then? Do you submit to the governing authorities or no? You do not. This is where Psalm 118 comes in. What Paul speaks of in Romans 13 is the norm. The norm is that the government is established by God and that he appoints the rulers and they are there to serve him and to take care of you, to promote peace and unity. What a perfect world that would be. But when, they go, when the governing authorities go against the word of God and when they actively rebel against him, your first duty is to whom? To God, yes. This is why, by the way, you obey the governing authorities. You don't obey them because they exist. You obey them because you obey God. Because God has instituted them, so you obey them. But if they disobey God, then you still go back and default to your primary authority, which is God. Does this make sense? Questions? Okay, Sunday school children may depart. And we will continue. We, uh, we're still doing the Bible study here against the modern modalist. Remember, mine is pink because I'm a dandy. Uh, but yours is just plain old white. Okay? We rushed through number three. And I'm going to review that. But before I do that, I think it was maybe two weeks ago that somebody had a question about why we have closed communion. Why if your Methodist friend or your Baptist grandmother comes to our church, I will not commune them. And we spoke at great length about that. But I've been, I was thinking this week about it and there was another thing that I just wanted to tell you to show you how vivid this is and how uh, this is not a matter to be taken lightly. Free distribution of the Eucharist is not a good thing. And here's why. Let's rewind. We're going to go back to the early church. The first two, three, four centuries of the church. Now what is happening to Christians during this time period? 
If you think about the history of the early Christian church, they're expanding in whose empire? The Roman Empire, correct. That's predominantly where Christianity begins and grows, under the Roman eagle, the Roman authority. Now, what do the Romans do about the Christians? Do they like them? For a long time, they put them in the arena and turn the lion loose. Is that? Yes, that's where I'm going. Okay. <laughs> the Romans do not like the Christians because the Christians are traitors. If you don't worship Caesar, who is God number one, if you worship a God that is not Caesar and you refuse to bow down to Caesar, then you are committing high treason. So that's one thing. Christians are traitors to the Roman Empire because they will not submit. They are also strange. They are a strange secret cult. And we don't like strange secret cults in the Roman Empire, so we're going to squash them out. They are also weird people who do weird things because they say that slaves and freemen are equal, that men and women are equal, and they treat everybody the same. That's weird, and we don't like it. They also say they eat the body and blood of their Lord. That's really weird. That's what we call cannibalism. We're going to kill them for that. All of this compounds, and there's much more too, but these, this is some of the main stuff. It compounds, and they kill the Christians. Bill is right. They put them in the gladiatorial arenas uh, to be fed to the lions. They also tied them up on poles around the stadium, dipped them in tar, and then lit them on fire to provide light for the games. They did not like the Christians. They did not treat the Christians well. So when you were a Christian, to confess your faith was a big deal. And you did not enter into the confession of your faith lightly because you knew what it meant if you confessed your faith and then were caught by the Roman authorities. So, when it came to communion, the reason that communion was withheld and why it was closed with a D, not close, was uh, because to commune at an altar meant that you were willing to die for everyone that you communed with, that you were willing to die for the confession of faith held by everybody with whom you communed, and that you would be willing to die with the confession on your lips of everyone there at that altar. So here's the question then. You, my congregation, when you go to visit your Methodist aunt and she says, oh, it's okay, we all commune here, you're welcome to commune here. Are you going to commune there? Are you willing to die with the confession on your lips, this is not the body and blood of Christ. And now, when, go ahead. But what if you go there and when you're actually taking 
communion is not an individual business. That's why it's called communion. The whole name tells you what it is. It's not individual union. It's communion. It's the communio. It's the confession, the unified confession of the altar. It doesn't matter what you believe personally. Remember, it's not about you. Even if you go to the Methodist church, it's not about you. If you believe personally that it's the body and blood of Christ, fine and dandy on you, thanks be to God, but you're communing in the confession that says it isn't, which means above and beyond all that I have already said about that, becoming in union with that fellowship, saying amen to what is taught there. Uh, the early church attitude, which is one that we, we often fail to talk about, but the idea that you are so sure and certain of the confession of faith at that place that you will unite yourself to it in life and in death. Now you might personally believe that it is the true body and blood of Christ, but are you going to say amen to the altar that says it isn't? And if you do say amen to the altar that says it isn't, it, then do you really believe that it is? What is your, what is your confession? That's the, that's the major question here that we deal with. Uh, all that I've already said and all that I said just this morning can be boiled down to this one question. What is your confession? Is your confession that it is the body and blood, Marla? Yes. Is the confession of the Methodist Church that it is the body and the blood? No, no it is not. So, when you go to the Methodist Church, does it matter what you personally believe? If you say amen to the confession of the church, it does not. Because the job of the Christian is to submit. Remember, it, look, the creed, this is the thing about the creed too, the creed is not your creed. The creed is not yours to say, I personally believe and confess these things about Jesus. I personally believe in the virgin birth. That's great if you do believe in the virgin birth, but there are a lot of people who don't, and a lot of people who are converts to Christianity who come here and have a lot of trouble with some of the teachings of the church because it's so foreign. The confession of the church is just that. It is the confession of the church. The creed is the teaching of the church. So what do you do as good Christians? You say, Amen. You submit to what the church teaches and what the church says. And that also applies to sacrament of the altar. Are you, when you go to the altar, you submit to the teachings of the altar. Again, it doesn't matter then what you believe personally, because when you go to the altar to receive communion, you are submitting to the teaching of the altar. You are making that confession your own. So then it becomes a problem if you say, I disagree with what's being taught at this altar, but I still want to be part of this community. Because then you don't really want to be a part of the community. And then that causes fractions, uh, disunity uh, in the body. So think of it that way then. Uh, the early church. Are you going to die with your last breath confessing what is confessed at that altar. And likewise, when folks come here, am I going to allow their last breath to be something that goes against their confession? I'm not. Because that's bad for me, 
It's bad for you all as this community, and it's bad for the individual. And my job is to give you what's good for you. Which also sometimes mean that there is chastisement and rebuke, because it's good for you. But what is never good for you is uh, receiving the body and blood poorly and joining yourself to a confession that is not your own and submitting to a church and an altar and a fellowship and a communion that is not yours. That's why there's two parts to the closed communion questions. Are you a Christian, first of all? Are you even part of the body of Christ, first of all? Because if you're not, then we stop right there. <laughs> Justin Martyr, we call this holy food the Eucharist, and it is not to be received by any who are not a, uh, a part of the body and blood of Christ. So that's the first step. Are you a Christian? And the second question is, that's great that you are a Christian. Now what is your public confession as a Christian? Okay. Uh, any questions before we move on from this? Yes. I find it kind of unique. We're excluded from a uh, Eucharistic celebration of the Catholic Church. And yet, a lot of what we take from the Catholic Church is some of our teachings. Say all of us, but some of them. And yet, you go to the altar, but you have to have your hands crossed and not take Oh, sure. Well, here's the thing I'll bless anybody. If you want to come up and get a blessing, that's fine. I'll bless you. I'm just not going to give you the body and blood. A blessing is good for you. If you don't believe in the body and the blood, then the body and the blood is bad for you. I'm only going to give you the things that are good for you. It's a really important, really important business. That's part of pastoral discretion. The other thing, too, is I'm the one that has to give an account as the overseer of this church. And... I already know that there's going to be enough stuff on that list where Jesus looks at me and says, well, I'm not so sure that uh, I agree with your decision there. <laughs> the, I know, I've only, I'm only a year in. Uh, so the last thing that I want to do is intentionally add more onto that. Willingly put that burden upon myself and put that burden upon another Christian. The pastor is to care for, to shepherd and to lead. Uh, that is all act of care, like a father, spiritual father. You're, when you ask your father for an egg or a foreign fish, he will not give you a stone or a scorpion. <laughs> when your child asks you for a scorpion, also, uh, you won't give it to him. You know, I agree with you on that part since I find you Catholic Church does exactly what we do in that case of close to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well... And that's fine. I mean, I just find it unique. Yes, well, remember this. The Reformation was not about leaving the Catholic Church. Uh, that's not what it was about at all. That's what the Protestant Reformation was about because Calvin and Zwingli and the guys from John Knox from Scotland, and there was a guy from England. They said, yeah, Luther, all right, down with the Catholic Church. It's all bad. Burn it to the ground and build a brand new one. And Luther said, no, no, 
that's not what I did. And they said, yeah, that's what you did. We're going to do it too. And then you have Protestantism, which is why I hate it, by the way, when Lutherans are called Protestants, because we're not, and you shouldn't want to be. The Methodists, the Evangelicals, the Pentecostals, they are Protestants. You are not Protestants. You are of the Catholic tradition, the Orthodox, the Roman Catholics, and the Lutherans. The three of us are the only ones that stem from this tradition. The Reformation was not about leaving the Catholic Church. It was about reforming the Catholic Church, fixing errors so that the Catholic Church would continue to be the Catholic Church. Um, Melanchthon, in one of the documents that is in the Book of Concord, says when the, when the errors are fixed and we are of one faith we will gladly come and bow down and kiss the ring of the Pope. Now let that sink in, Lutherans. When everything goes back to normal, you, all of you, will gladly kneel down and kiss the ring of the Holy Father. Is that the Augsburg Confession? Uh, it might have been at the very end. I can't remember if it was the Augsburg Confession or the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, but I believe it's one of those two. So that, I mean, that sort of chafes a little bit. Because we're, we're led to believe that we're part of that Protestant group that says, down with it all, it's all horrible, and we're going to burn it, and we're going to make a brand new one. But we're not. We didn't leave the Catholic Church. They put our stuff in garbage bags and threw it out onto the curb from the second story window. And we're sitting out there going, no, please, please, we want to come back. That's the, that's the relationship we have. So when people say things like, boy, your church seems very Catholic, you can say, Thanks be to God, what a compliment. <laughs> they're, they're, my, so my aunt uh, came from a family that was Roman Catholic, Shiite Roman Catholic. Daily mass, just big time Roman Catholic. And she came to visit our Lutheran church one time where I grew up and she said, wow. I didn't think a Lutheran church would be like that at all. I would be very comfortable here. And we all kind of said, yeah, yeah. And my pastor said, well, good, you know, that's the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> uh, anyway, we are way off topic. Point number three here. Oh. Yes, they should be in the back. There are also Bibles back there. Point number three, the person of the Godhead... Persons of the Godhead are distinct even in their unity. Remember, God is one. There is one God, yes, but God in that oneness is also one. One means unity. God is united. The three are united. Uh, there are three persons, and they are distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Although, we haven't progressed far enough here to call them that. We're just talking about persons. But you know who they are. They're distinct even in their unity, and they are distinctly identified. So you have them talking about the Father. You have Scripture talking about the Son. You have Scripture talking about the Spirit. And they're talking about one God, but they're talking about separate, distinct persons. So that's what we covered briefly at the tail end we sort of rushed through it, but I wanted to hit that again because that sets the stage for what we're going to look at this morning, which is point four. 
And this is a big one. This is the end, and it's at the end for a reason. We're saving the best for last. This is the culmination. Jesus is the Son of God as distinct from the person of the Father. In other words, the Father and the Son are not the same person. They are not the same. God the Father is not this mystical person who does stuff in the Old Testament and then who transforms himself like Optimus Prime to come down to earth for the New Testament part. Hey, same old me, but I got a brand new suit. Now I look like you. No more pillars of fire and smoke for you guys. Now you get a body. Not how it goes. The body of Christ, the flesh and blood in the incarnation, is the Son. So uh, we'll see here, at, when we look at some of this stuff, especially the Old Testament, because how do you say the Son is present in the Old Testament? Uh, there are things called theophanies or Christophanies, appearances or manifestations of God in the Old Testament, and specifically Christophanies is what we look at, uh, appearances of the Son or revelations of the Son in the Old Testament. Here's one that I can show you. We don't even have to look at it. I'm going to just show you right off the top of my head. What does God do with Adam in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day? In the cool of the day, God does something with Adam in the garden. He, I heard it. Somebody said it. I don't know who said it. Hmm? He walks. God walks in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam. Now riddle me this, Batman. How do you walk if you do not have legs? And don't try and explain this away to me and say, well, walking with God just means that they believed in God. So when it says he walked in the cool of the day, it means just that Adam believed in God. Wrong. You're correct in saying walking with God means belief. But look at the subject. It's flip-flopped. If, if it means faith, it's that person walked with God. Noah walked with God. Enoch walked with God. That person walks with God according to faith. But in Genesis, what happens first? God walks with him. In the cool of the day. Why does the cool of the day matter? Nothing's an accident in the Bible. Why does the cool of the day matter? What does the weather matter if it's just about faith? Hey, this is a really great day outside. I'm going to believe in Jesus in the cool of the day. It doesn't matter. The weather doesn't matter at all if all it's talking about is faith. You don't hear about Enoch walking with God in the cool of the day or Joseph walked with God through the rainstorm to the cave where he sought shelter. No, the weather doesn't matter. But here it does because God comes and God walks with Adam and Eve. That's a Christophany. That's Christ. That's Jesus in the garden before Jesus has even become incarnate. Think about this. Why do you look the way that you look? 
Why don't you look like a dog or a cat or a fish or a bird? Why do you look the way that you look? On two legs, with eyes and a nose and a mouth and hands and ten fingers and ten toes. You're created in the image and the likeness of God. Now that's different than all the other animals. They all look like animals, but you, you look like something else. Well, how do you know what the image and the likeness of God are if Jesus doesn't have an image or a likeness until the time of the incarnation? Because Jesus does have an image and a likeness, and he has one before the incarnation. The difference between what we're going to see in the Old Testament Christophanies and anything that takes place after the incarnation is the reality of the flesh. Jesus can take the form of a man, and he does many times. Who do you think the commander of the armies of the Lord is? And don't say an angel, because angels are the army of the Lord. Who commands them? It's God who commands them. And who is the God? Which person makes himself visible so that you can see him and who looks like a man? Jesus. Well, now, think about this, too. Who is Melchizedek? Now we're on fringe territory, by the way, because a lot of people disagree with me on this. But I'm pretty sure I'm right. <laughs> and, I'm, and by the way, I'm probably the most humble person you've ever met, and I'm very proud of that fact. Uh, Melchizedek. Do you, do you remember? Yeah, the, there's, the psalm talks about it, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a priest. And where do we read about Melchizedek? Abraham. And what does Abraham do with Melchizedek? He eats with him. He has bread and wine with Melchizedek. And this is the big kicker. What does the name Melchizedek, Melchizedek, what does it mean? My wife knows this. <laughs> I, don't, I don't expect any of you to understand the Hebrew. Oh, yes, well, Pastor, according to my studies, <laughs> it means, I believe, now you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, king of righteousness. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Here is a man, a high priest man, who comes to Abraham and who serves him bread and wine, whose name is the king of righteousness. Now, come on, folks. If that doesn't just scream, hey, hey, I'm Jesus, I don't know what does. There are so many red flags there, I can't even count them. The red flags of the Melchizedek story are like the descendants of Abraham as the stars. Okay? Now, that's sort of my segue because we're going to look at another Abraham account. So let's look at Genesis 18, verses 1 through 5. Genesis chapter 18, 1 through 5.
So yeah. Okay. Okay. This is so great. I love this. There's so much to say. First of all, verse 1. What is Abraham doing? What's Abraham doing? What's the weather? In the heat of the day. What does that sound like? Walking with Adam in the cool of the day. The Lord appears to Abraham in the heat of the day. Here you go again, guys. It's the weather. The weather doesn't matter if all this is is some kind of a vision or a or a metaphor for faith, but it matters here because there's a physical presence. There's a physical presence. And I love this. This is another thing. If, if your English translations do, or if your editors do this, we talked about Lord in all capitals versus Lord in lowercase, well, capital L, then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees, or by the oaks. What Lord is this, if your editors have followed these rules? Yeah, it's all caps. And who does that refer to? All caps? Specifically, uh, the, the, the whole Godhead. Yeah, the whole trinity. Remember, capital letters is uh, Yahweh, which is the, the tetragrammaton, the four letters, because it's this. Tetragrammaton, four letters. That's the name of God. So anytime this is here, this is the fullness of the Godhead. That is the name for the fullness of the Godhead. Uh, anytime that appears, they will often, uh, the editors will put that in all capitals to tell you that this is the fullness of the triune God right here. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God of the promise. You want to know something here. This is the I am, by the way. So anytime when Jesus says, I am, this is what he said. Which is why I hate it when the translators do things like what they do for Jesus walking on the water. The disciples think that he is a phantasma, a phantasm, a ghost. And in your Bibles, he says, hey, it's me. But in the Greek it says, I am. That's it, that's all it says, I am. He identifies himself as who he is. Now, there's the Lord, the fullness of the Godhead appears. And what does he say? First of all, he bows himself down to the ground. True or false, Abraham knows who these three men are. True. That's one of the things, that's one of the things uh, about the weather, why the weather matters, why the order matters. Walking with God is faith. God walking with you in the cool of the day means God is right there with you. 
you guys are chumming it up and you're walking through the garden on your legs. The order matters. The Lord appears to Abraham in the heat of the day. He is there. Present, right there, right before him. Standing before him. That matters. And Abraham knows who this is. He bows down. But what does he call him? My Lord. Which Lord is that? I don't see all capitals in mine. Which means that this is the word Adonai. Which in the Greek uh, is Kyrie. Kyrios. Lord. Who is Kyrios? Who is the person who we call to in the Kyrie? <coughs> Lord, have mercy. Christ, Christ have mercy. Kyrios <coughs> is Christ. Lord. So you have the fullness of the Godhead that appears. And what does he call him? Christ. He calls him Lord. The fullness of the Godhead is present. Now, here's the question. This, this is another place where a lot of people disagree. Who are the three men? We know that there's the fullness of the Godhead there, and we know specifically that there is Christ there. So we know one of the three men is Christ, but who are the other two? Pardon me? Angels. Yeah, that's good. I agree with you. That's not what I was expecting people to say. I'm really impressed. Good work. <laughs> because most people see three men and Lord, and they think, oh, this is the Trinity. It's the Trinity that has taken on flesh and is now here in front of Abraham. Three men, three persons. That makes sense. In fact, in iconography... There are icons of the Holy Trinity, and I love the icons, I just disagree with them, of Abraham and then the three men sitting around the table, and one of them looks like the Son, one of them looks like the Father, and then the third one has his back sort of turned to you as you look at the icon, and he has his hand like this, but they paint his hand so that it looks like the head of a dove for the Holy Spirit. Now let's jump ahead here and I'm going to tell you why I disagree with that. John 1, verse 18. No one had ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is the Father's side, has made him known. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Okay. And then again, John 6, verse 46. So now, based on these two verses, how many people have seen God the Father? Not zero. Just one. It's a trick question. How many of mankind have seen the Father? 
zero. So how can three men to Abraham be the Trinity, which does include the Father, if no man has ever seen the Father? That's my question. And so far to this date, it has not been satisfactorily answered, which means I am unswayed by the argument that says this is the Holy Trinity. And especially if you look ahead in Genesis, what do the two men do? If you remember, maybe you don't. What they do after they eat with Abraham. The one just goes away. But the two go off to Sodom and Gomorrah to be with Lot. And what are the two men called later on when they come to Sodom and Gomorrah? They are called the angels of the Lord go to Sodom and Gomorrah. So all of this then combines. This is a Christophany, another one. The fullness of the Godhead you see in the pre-incarnate person of Christ. And yet, he is distinct from the Father. No one has seen the Father, but you have seen the Son. They're not the same person. Questions? Okay, this is a lot to chew on. But it's good stuff and it's important stuff. So, yeah, go ahead. Like the next chapter, I just go back to Genesis because I was curious mm -hmm. what it said. And the very first verse of chapter 19 says, The two angels came to God in the evening and while the city in the gate was locked. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now mine says now, and I'm sure that there are other translations that say and as well. The conjunction is really important there. Because without the conjunction, if it just says, once upon a time, two angels went to Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, then it doesn't mean anything. It just means two angels came from somewhere and they went to Sodom and Gomorrah. But if it says the two angels went, or now the two angels went, or and the two angels went. What does that mean? It means it's the same two. It's connecting one account to another. That's something that you see a lot in the Bible. If you really want to see it, read the Gospel of Mark. Mark is like reading Matthew and Luke but you've clicked the fast-forward button about three times. Because time in the Gospel of Mark goes so quickly. It just flies by. Everything happens immediately and immediately. You could read the whole Gospel of Mark and think that everything took place in one day. It goes by so quickly. That's something that happens. Time floats. This happened, and then this happened. These people did this, and then they went here. It's tying the whole narrative together. Yes, Carol. Even if you continue reading through 18, um, this is when the angels come to the Lord. Yes. Yes, Abraham knows what's going to take place at Sodom and Gomorrah. And I also like that. 
that they go on ahead of the Lord. The Lord does not come to Sodom and Gomorrah looking like a man, though. What does he come looking like? That's what he comes looking like. What does the Lord look like on top of Mount Sinai? I mean, excuse me, not Mount Sinai, Mount Carmel, different mount. On top of Mount Carmel. First of all, what happens on top of Mount Carmel? There's a great prophet, Elijah, and there's a large event that happens between him and the prophets of Baal. They're going to have a contest to see whose God is the best and whose God really listens. And they have sacrifices. And they say, well, hey, the first person whose God sends down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice, that'll be, that'll be the real God. And Elijah is so gracious and he says, hey, why don't you guys go first? <laughs> you guys go first. I'll... I'll, I'll wait here and I'll watch you. You do your thing. And nothing happens, and he makes fun of them the whole time. You know, uh, there's a great musical oratorio called Elijah by Mendelssohn, who was a good Lutheran composer, by the way. Little-known oratorio by Mendelssohn is called Paulus, and it's the story of Paul. And there's a great part in that oratorio where the conversion happens and heaven opens and the light comes down and Paul, Saul is blinded. And the voices of the chorus that sing the part of Christ speaking to Saul on the road to Damascus is a children's choir. Saul, Saul, something in German I don't understand. <laughs> But it's these voices of the children. The whole orchestra is going, and then it goes dead silent, and all you hear is the voices of these children. Oh, it's beautiful. But anyway, Elijah. If you listen to Elijah in English instead of in German, then you hear Elijah's sung by a bass, of course, because if you ever want somebody to sound really big and heroic, you just give their parts to the bass, because that's the manly of man voices. And he goes, call him louder. And then the whole choir starts going, bail, bail. And he goes, call him louder. And it just gets louder and louder. Oh, it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. That should be your homework. Listen to Mendelssohn's Elijah with Bryn Terfel. He's a Welsh bass. You don't listen to it with anybody else. It's not worth your time. Bryn Terfel is the one to listen to. Uh, but anyway, he makes fun of them. He even says, well, maybe your God is in the bathroom. Maybe he's just, maybe he just needed a little bit of time away to take care of his business there. And uh, then he calls upon his God and fire comes from heaven. It's the same, it's the same vision of God, it's the same appearance of God as it is on Mount Sinai. Fire from heaven. Where does the sun go? He goes to Sodom and Gomorrah but he doesn't look like a man when he goes there. He comes down in fire. How does the sun, because it is the sun, speak to Moses? The burning bush. What do you need for something to be burning? You need fire. You need fire for something to be burning. 
What sits in the temple to tell you that the Lord is in the temple? Here's a hint. We have something like it in our sanctuary. An eternal flame or the, can the, the lamp of the presence. And what burns in that? A flame. What happens on Pentecost? That's today, by the way. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Tongues of flame. Fire is important business, too. But, but anyway, we could have a whole class on fire. What does... Oh, actually, here we go. N never mind. This ties in perfectly. Exodus 16. I forgot. It's like I planned it. <laughs> I didn't really, but I'll, I'll let you think that I did. Act, uh, Exodus chapter 16, verse 10. The glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Yes. How else does the glory of the Lord appear to Israel? Think about the Red Sea crossing. The Egyptians are bearing down pretty quickly and they've got horses and chariots. How is it that they are not able to outrun all of these tired Israelites as they walk? There's a pillar pillar of cloud and how do the Israelites see where they're going pillar of fire pillar of fire here's the pillar now go to Acts chapter 9 Acts chapter 9 verses 1 through 5 Okay. It doesn't appear at first glance that these two things, the glory of the Lord appearing in the pillar of cloud, and then also tying in with the pillar of fire, and the conversion of Saul really go together. But who's, who appears in the blinding light? Who appears in the pillar of fire? Who appears in the pillar of cloud? Who speaks from the pillar of cloud? The glory of the Lord. And who is the glory of the Lord? 
That's what the conversion of Saul answers. Who is the glory of the Lord? He tells you himself who he is. I am Jesus. I am Jesus. Jesus is the glory of the Lord. Jesus is the one who appears in pillars of cloud and pillar of fire. Jesus is the one who speaks forth from the burning bush, the word of God speaking forth. Jesus is the one. No one has seen the Father, but the Son glorifies the Father. Indeed, the Son is the glory of the Father. The blinding light appears. This is Jesus. Now, where is the Father in all of this? This is a trick question, by the way. Where is the Father in all of this, in the conversion of Saul? The Father's there. Because remember, the thing about the Trinity is the persons of the Trinity do not act independently. Anywhere where one person of the Trinity is acting, the other person is acting, the other persons are acting as well. Remember what I told you. If you want to draw the Trinity, you have to draw the Trinity like this. One circle, two circles, three circles. Now I'm not a very good drawer, so my circles look slightly different. But imagine that this just looks like one circle. I drew it three times, but it's superimposed on itself. How many circles do you see? You only see one, but how many are there? Three. Wherever this circle goes, all three parts of the circle go. Wherever one person of the Trinity is acting, the other parts of the Trinity, the other persons, I should say, parts isn't a good word, the other persons of the Trinity are acting. Everything takes place in unity. God is one. There's unity within the Trinity. So the Father is there. The Spirit is there. But who is the one who is identified? Jesus. Which should tell you something. It should tell you that Jesus and the Father are not the same person. They are the same God. And they are both persons of that Godhead. But they are not the same person. Which is one of the things that we are looking at here concerning the Trinity in general. The argument that says the Father and the Son really are the same person. Everything's just about Jesus. There's one God. The Trinity's made up. He just comes in different forms. He looks differently. He puts on different Halloween costumes every time he wants to go do something. But it's all the same God. Uh, hopefully some of this will show you that it's correct to say it's the same God, but not to say that it's the same person. Now, uh, there's a lot more scripture, and I'd encourage you to look at it. And I even did you a favor because I didn't just give you a bunch of scripture and say, look at all of this. If there is scripture that goes together, I even put little pluses there so that you can jump around and say, Genesis 18 does go with John 1.18. And you can look at them all together. That's important that you see the continuity. So uh, we'll close this section out with this quote then from Tertullian.
against Praxeus, who was an anti-Trinitarian, a father must needs have a son in order to be a father. So likewise, a son, to be a son, must have a father. It is, however, one thing to have and another thing to be. For instance, I can never myself be my own wife. In like manner, in order to be a father, I have a son. For I never can be a son to myself. And in order to be a son, I have a father, it being impossible for me ever to be my own father. So let's break this quote down. This is what it says. If you are a father, you are only a father because you have a child. You don't get to be called dad or father if you don't have a child. So the child makes you into a father. And here he uses son because this is referencing the Trinity. God cannot be father if he does not have a son. And he cannot be his own son. I like that. I cannot be my own wife. It's sort of funny because you should tell that to some of the people in the modern culture who want to be their own wife or their own husband. In fact, I think just a few weeks ago, there was a woman who legally married herself and said that she's the happiest she's ever been after marrying herself and that she doesn't regret the decision. It was the best decision she made. And I think, I don't really understand how your life is any different after that than it was before that, but maybe I'm just a little slow. <laughs> so you can't be your own father. You can't be your own son. God cannot be father just because he wants to be called father. He has called father because he has a son. The son is called son because he has a father. The son can't be his own father. The father can't be his own son. They have to be distinct. The father and the son. They can be together in the Godhead, but they can't be together in the person. They have to be separate. Questions? Okay. All right, well, then I will see you at the high altar. <laughs>